Another key driver globally of new investment in renewables is the desire of consumers and customers, whether it's Google or Microsoft or General Motors or Johnson & Johnson. And those sort of corporate bilateral agreements to procure renewable energy are very hard to do in Canada. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast extends a theme featured in a number of previous podcasts on future technologies. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face but using Zoom. This time, the conversation is about renewable energy, and I'm joined by Robert Horning, the President and CEO of the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. In my conversation with Robert, we discuss wind and solar power, as well as energy storage, and their place in Canada's energy mix today and in the future. We also touch on regulatory barriers to greater renewable energy, the future customer experience, and the challenges of establishing a new energy association during a global pandemic. And like many previous podcasts, we close the conversation with a book recommendation, as Robert becomes the second podcast guest to recommend The Overstory by Richard Powers. Here is my conversation with Robert, recorded in early October 2020. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Francis. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I've had conversations um, with our colleagues that run the Water Power Association and the Nuclear Association, uh, and I really wanted to to have an opportunity to have a, a conversation with you so we can talk about where a lot of the the growth is going to be coming from in future years, and that's in the in the renewable space. So I thought maybe we could start there, because you know, when I say there's going to be a lot of growth, let's for the for the listener kind of lay out where things stand today in terms of um, uh, renewables contribution to uh, to Canada's uh, electricity system, and, and then we can talk about where where it's going to go into the future. What's the current picture today for for wind, for solar, for storage? Because those are the three that that your association represents. Yeah, no, happy to speak to that. So um, right now of those technologies, wind is the one that's made the the sort of the biggest breakthroughs in the Canadian market. And in fact, little known fact probably for a lot of people is that Canada has the ninth largest installed wind energy capacity in the world. Mm. Um, And indeed over the last 10 years, there's been more wind energy capacity installed in Canada than any other source of generation. So that sort of growth has already started in Canada. Um, In solar, uh, we're in the top 20 globally in terms of install capacity. The bulk of that is concentrated in Ontario. Right. A little bit in other parts of the country. Wind is much more broadly distributed. And then I'd say on the storage side, frankly, we're a little bit behind other jurisdictions. Naturally, we already have a great natural storage source in terms of our huge hydroelectric capacity, which can play an important role in terms of storage. But in terms of seeing the adoption of some of the new technologies that are coming forward in terms of battery storage, compressed air, et cetera, we're we're only at the start of that. And there's a lot of potential for us to grow in that area. And one of the things I would just say is that in all of these areas, 
just as we have tremendous water resources and, and, and other natural resources, uh, we have a great untapped sort of richness mm-hmm. of wind and solar energy resources that we can capitalize on going forward, which positions us very well right. as we move to create an electricity system in the future that meets a whole range of objectives, including being non-emitting. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned how um, wind in particular has grown significantly uh, over the last several years. One of the other things that's changed is it's now really competitive, right? I mean, when you when you go back uh, to the early days of wind, it required financial support for it to, to kind of work in the marketplace, but it's competing head to head, right? Yeah, we would actually argue that today there's no, uh, on a levelized cost of energy basis, there's yeah. no cheaper source of new electricity generation in Canada than wind. <clears throat> We've had recent procurements in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yeah where the winning bids are coming in at under $40 a megawatt hour, less than four cents a kilowatt hour. Uh And we've seen solar bids come in now quite regularly at six, seven cents a kilowatt hour. So solar is also coming down very rapidly. And and really it's, you know, you mentioned earlier, we expect to see these technologies play a large role going forward in terms Mm -hmm. of new electricity supply. Mm -hmm. Uh, The key enabler of that in a lot of ways is the cost reductions that have been achieved that enable us to move forward in a cost competitive manner to bring these technologies on the grid. So that's the key enabler. What are the the barriers today in terms of, particularly with with respect to wind and solar, getting more of it into, into our energy mix? Well, I think it's, it's interesting because I, I, I think in, in Canada right now, um, we face a number of challenges that, uh, that are in some ways <laughs> unique to Canada. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, at the moment, <clears throat> uh, I'm very confident when Canada needs new electricity supply, wind and solar will be up at the front in terms of consideration. Right. We don't need a lot of new electricity supply right now. We have electricity yeah. surpluses in some parts of the country. Demand growth is slow. Yeah. And some of the drivers that we see in other jurisdictions, for example, decarbonization, which is mm-hmm. driving a lot of investment in renewables. Right. Uh, we have a grid that's 80% decarbonized. Yeah, already. Yeah. Yeah. So where that where we have where we're using fossil fuels, Alberta, Saskatchewan, in the Maritimes, and Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, you see a lot of activity around renewables. Mm-hmm. Um, in other parts of the country, less so. Right. Another key driver globally of new investment in renewables is uh, the desire of consumers and customers okay. to yep. renewable energy, whether yep. it's Google or Microsoft or General Motors or Johnson and Johnson. Mm-hmm. And those sort of corporate bilateral agreements to procure renewable energy are very hard to do in Canada. <laughs> Our electricity markets don't allow that in most markets because there's only one customer that you can work with. Which is oh, I see. So it's just a, it's just a difference in the way our markets are structured. The way the markets are structured, and you're starting okay. to see in Alberta, where we have a fully deregulated market, yeah. a tremendous uptick. We just had an announcement just a little while ago: the Royal Bank investing in a solar project in the province. Mm-hmm. We have Telus investing in projects, TransCanada Energy, and others. And that, again, is where we're going to see a lot of significant growth there. But I think going forward, everyone would agree we have to focus on energy efficiency. Right. But we're going to need more electricity. And in that context, when that comes, when we move forward with electrification, be it of transportation or buildings or industry, mm-hmm. when that new demand is required, we're very confident about the ability of wind and solar to compete for those opportunities going forward. 
Now, what about uh, what about the intermittent nature of some of these resources? But is it uh, you know to, to what degree is that really an issue? Given that you know, I mean, as you mentioned before, we've got we've got at least in some jurisdictions this enormous um, hydroelectric backbone that that that, that backstops this. Um, how how big an issue, or is it not an issue in terms of the intermittency of things like wind and solar? It's certainly not an issue today, and it certainly wouldn't be an issue with a significant upgrade in terms of wind and solar energy production. Mm-hmm. But it is something we have to be aware of. And, and we can look at experience around the world. We've got numerous countries around the world right now that, for example, get more than 20% of their electricity from wind alone. Okay. Some that get 40% of their electricity from wind. Um, in Canada, wind and solar is still contributing only about 7%. Gotcha. So we have tremendous growth opportunities there. And really, it's a product of technological evolution, um, but also just learning and experience from other countries. Uh, In the early 2000s, the Alberta electric system operator publicly stated that uh, they would not accept more than 900 megawatts of wind energy on the grid because they were concerned it would destabilize the system. Okay, and what's it up to now? now, Yeah, Alberta now has 1,600 megawatts. They're looking at building thousands of megawatts more. And that's from learning, uh, seeing what other jurisdictions are doing, learning about how expanded grids, better interconnections can help improve forecasting for these technologies. And now we have the new enabler coming forward, which is energy storage. Okay, so when you were talking earlier about in some jurisdictions, it's up to 20, in some cases, even 40% to get beyond that in terms of offsetting the intermittency. That's where things like new technologies and storage can come into play, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's there's not a general rule. Every jurisdiction is unique. Right. Um, its level of interconnectedness with other jurisdictions, whether it has complementary generation that is more or less useful at facilitating the integration of these technologies. Uh-huh. But certainly we can go much further than we can today. There's not a technological barrier there. And we see the solutions emerging that will allow us to go further in the future. Right. Hey, one of the things that um, I ask uh, people who participate in the podcast, and I've received some some positive feedback uh, in terms of it's one of the things that the listener finds interesting, is to talk about people's journey. Um, so let's step back a little bit. Maybe let's first off, let's. You're running a new association, right? And so how did that come about? Because the Canadian Renewable Energy Association is a merger of a couple of other associations previously. What was what was the what was the impetus, and and what does this new new association look like? How's it going to be different? So you're absolutely right. The Canadian Renewable Energy Association opened its doors on July 1st of this year, mm-hmm. and was a merger of the Canadian Wind Energy Association and the Canadian Solar Industries Association. Okay, and that was a process of about 18 months of uh, of discussion between the associations, and the drivers for moving forward were, I guess, threefold. Um, first off a growing recognition that many of our member companies are multi-technology companies. They don't just work in wind or solar. They work with a range of technologies, including energy storage increasingly. Right. Uh, The second recognition was that as these technologies strive to play a greater role in the electricity grid um, and provide more than energy, provide a range of ancillary services and contribute to the grid in a number of ways, they are able to do that more effectively when we consider their use in a complementary manner or in a joint manner, as opposed to just speaking about them individually. They're very complementary technologies. And we spoke a little earlier about the role that energy storage, for example, can help to play in addressing the variability of wind and solar energy generation and Mm -hmm. providing a more stable product into the grid. So 
it was our view that when by coming together, we can speak to utilities, we can speak to system operators, we can speak to customers and provide a more comprehensive set of solutions for them to consider right. yeah. as they look at expanding and growing their electricity grid going forward. And I guess the third thing was that we felt there would be uh, value in coming together and having a stronger voice and okay. bringing these interests together and, and advocating because even though we, you know, we can say the, the electricity grid has to evolve in certain ways and things like this, none of that is just going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, yep. There are policy changes, regulatory changes, market changes that have to occur. And we felt that we would be in a stronger position to advocate for those positions, working together as opposed to separately as distinct organizations. Okay. And I, I, do, I do want to follow up on, on the, uh, the question of your journey to, to your position, but you, you said something that I think might be interesting, uh, once again, for the listener, um, who, who uh, probably doesn't understand the complexities of the system, but you talked about um, other services, ancillary services. What would that mean for you know for for the end customer that only thinks that you know electricity is is something that they plug in and it, it flows and, and that's all there is to it? Well, I mean the electricity system is a very complex system, and so the the operator of that system, yes, they need to ensure that energy moves from point A to point B, and when you push that plug in, that you're going to have power. Yeah. But they also need to ensure that that energy is uh, is stable and mm -hmm. constant and reliable. They need to be prepared to deal with variation that might occur. A plant goes offline. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that quickly before seeing the system crash? Right. Um, a whole range of services like that. And what's what's become clear uh, for, I think, for, for the wind and solar industries, for example, is recognizing that to be a good citizen of the grid, yeah. um, we have to do more than provide energy. We have <laughs> to contribute to those broader systemic sort of values and, and attributes. And the good news is that the technologies are actually well positioned to do that. And there are many ancillary services that these technologies can provide very quickly and at limited cost because okay. they, um, they, uh, their, their, their controls allow very rapid changes in terms of production up and down or changes in frequency or other things. So okay. um, we're in a discussion with many jurisdictions across the country who are now reevaluating where can I get these ancillary services from that I need to ensure that the grid is going to be fully operational if we're shifting out of fossil fuels where we've traditionally relied heavily on that? Right. Where can I do that? And wind and solar will be one part of the solution to that. There's a whole range, demand management and other things as well that will play and, and storage. And storage, storage as well, yeah. absolutely. So so there's, uh, you know, I think we're, we're in an era where... <laughs> uh, you know the world the the electricity system is becoming much more diversified much yeah. more decentralized yeah. which in a way introduces a lot of complexity all of a mm -hmm. sudden now we've got all these different players but it also opens the door to a stunning amount of increased flexibility and a range of options to manage different functions within the grid and i think that's what where we're starting to see markets and regulations evolve to enable system operators to have access to that full range of possibilities to find right. the most efficient and cost-effective ways to to provide its services. And not to drill too far down, but also to to value them as well, right? That's one of the other things because we haven't identified those ancillary services previously as, as separate and distinct. We haven't been we haven't necessarily been valuing them in uh, in the marketplace. And that's absolutely right. And for example, some of the 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 uh, the technology modifications that we're seeing in wind and solar to provide ancillary services right. um, 
in a sense, have always been there, but have never been explored and developed because there was no market for them. Right. As markets emerge, you see innovation, you see technological advancement, and again, a whole range of possibilities coming in to meet those needs. So let's get back to the to the journey question. Um, when when you were a, a young lad in the schoolyard, did you always dream of being the president of of a renewable energy association? How did you get to where you are today? What was what was your journey? When I left uh, university, I studied politics and economics, uh-huh. and and uh, and initially wanted to focus on development issues, international development issues, um, right. but recognize the linkage of environmental issues to development issues. So with the development issues, was that was that uh, because of an, an interest that, that um, developed because of your time at the Lester B. Pearson School? Because I saw that, uh, that, that you'd, you'd done your, the international baccalaureate there, right? Yeah, it certainly okay. was informed by that in terms yeah. of a, uh, yeah, a desire to work on issues of, of global importance or global okay. relevance, I guess, yep. in that regard, with a view to frankly, improving the quality of life for right. as many people as one can. Yeah. Um, but I ended up shifting from development more into environment, but again, looking at it from a global perspective. And so uh, the first part of my career, I focused on climate change issues. Okay. And worked on those issues from within the environmental community. I did a stint with the government of Canada. I did a stint with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, mm-hmm. all working on trying to advocate for action on climate change. And after doing that for a little more than a decade, or actually almost 15 years, I guess, in the end, um, came to the conclusion that this is not moving fast enough. Um, Feeling like I'm banging my head against the wall. Uh, We're going through the same arguments again and again and again. Where could I go to actually see progress and see uh, us actually taking concrete steps. And when the opportunity emerged to work at the Canadian Wind Energy Association, I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough to get that. I was able to combine these passions in terms of being able to bring forward solutions that I think will improve the planet and improve the quality of life right. um, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions going forward and see progress. And so the phenomenal growth we've seen in renewables, which is really still the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. has been very much inspiring in terms of informing me and making it clear that yes we can change we can make a difference um and uh, i've always felt it's really important to strive to do so and so you spent what uh, 15 17 years uh heading up the wind association and then you've been now well i guess it's (laughs) since the middle of the pandemic (laughs) since the middle of the pandemic was yeah was was that a, a complication i'm just um, you know, it just just occurs to me that merging two uh, two associations and 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 changing the changing the mandate to also include uh, storage in the middle of a global pandemic must have been uh, an interesting process to to bring all of those stakeholders together. Was that a challenge to bring those communities together, or were they essentially already you know one community? Um, no, I wouldn't say they were already one community, but I would say that we had strong support within the communities to move forward. So right. uh, we required member votes within both the Wind Association and the Solar Association to proceed with the merger. And those member votes in both cases were virtually unanimous Okay. in terms of moving forward. So we knew we had a strong base of support to move forward on. Obviously, uh, the pandemic has impacted our member companies as they have your member companies and others in terms yeah. of uh, their operations, but 
Um, I think, as you would say as well, I think uh, we can take a lot of pride in how our members have responded, mm -hmm. yep. uh, not only in ensuring sort of working to protect the health and safety of their own employees, but also to continue to provide that essential service and also to support the communities that they're working within. So that's been a phenomenally rewarding experience also to be part of and to mm -hmm. see happen. And I mean, we all hope we can get through this as, as quickly as we can and can yeah. move forward and move a little bit more back to normal. But uh, uh, no, I think we've, we've, we've felt fortunate in terms of the level of support we've had from within the membership for this direction and, uh, and continue to have that support. Are there, are there members, I mean, they're all, they're all companies that are involved in the uh, renewable uh, energy space here in Canada. Are they all Canadian companies as well? Or do you have some international players too? Oh, we're very much, uh, very much a multinational association. In okay. That so yeah. we are an association of companies that are active and interested in the Canadian marketplace. Right. So we have large Canadian companies, some in the traditional energy sector, the sort of Suncors, mm -hmm. the Transaltas, others like that. Um, we have emerging Canadian companies, Interjects, Borelex, Brookfield, right. who are focused exclusively on renewables. Yeah. But we also have Electricité de France. Some of the big international players. Some yeah. of the big, big international players, uh, Nextera from the US. Yeah. Um, and others who have seen opportunities in the Canadian market. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, for wind, for example, the ninth biggest market in the world, um, and have recognized the opportunities here and have decided to essentially establish roots here and to to build an industry here and we're very proud to have them as members right hey let's let's talk a little bit about those those um opportunities and future potentials um maybe start off with uh, with wind um i'm increasingly seeing stories about uh, the emergence of of offshore wind <clears throat> in uh, in other jurisdictions and We've got a lot of coastline in this country. Is, is that going to be the feature of, of the, the future of wind in Canada? Is, is offshore uh, something that, that we're likely to see evolve here as well? I think we will see it evolve here as well, but it will happen more slowly. I uh -huh. think, than in other jurisdictions. Well, is it because we have more land upon which? That's, that's oh, okay. definitely part of it, because yeah. in many of the countries that are leaders in offshore wind, whether it's uh, Germany, the United Kingdom, for okay. example, uh, you, there are fewer onshore opportunities available. So it's logical to move offshore. It's just a question of space. Have, yeah, okay. It's partially a question of space, oh. but it's also, also a question of market. Okay. If you look at our offshore um, uh, markets, if we were to build on the Atlantic coast, yeah. um, we have a small population base in Atlantic Canada and a small electricity load. So right. you know, anybody who's building in the Atlantic would be looking, yes, to serve that, but also to serve the, the Northeastern US market. Mm -hmm. and, in, and you have a tremendous amount of activity going on in the Northeastern US now right. offshore to, to do that. Um, uh, same thing on the Western coast, uh, okay. we've got Vancouver Island, so nobody's gonna be building right beside Vancouver. So again, limited demand there. So, so it's likely to come more slowly, I think, but it will come because just as we've seen with onshore wind, the costs of offshore wind are declining extremely rapidly. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point it will make sense to do it just on a cost basis going forward. So how, how big could wind be in uh, in in Canada's future, when we look out, oh, we've got a we've got a government that's committed to net zero uh, GHG emissions by 2050. Um, what's the the potential upside in terms of how much of that future, or how big can wind be in in the future energy mix of Canada? 
I, <laughs> it's almost a matter of what, what, what can you imagine? I mean, I think yeah. there's, uh, we, we, we will have more wind resource than we will ever be able to use. Um, right. Clearly, uh, you know, the, the, if you look at a group like Bloomberg New Energy Finance that projects that by uh, 2050, 50% of global electricity will be coming from wind solar storage. Mm, okay. okay. 50, 5 yeah, zero. 50% on a global scale. Right. So are there opportunities in Canada to significantly grow? Yes. Um, but we do have our strong hydroelectric base. We do have other resources that we will be able to tap into as well. So, I mean, there is, it is going to be a diversity of technologies that come forward. But in fact, the vision of our association is that we would like to see wind, solar and energy storage uh, play a central role in the transformation of the electricity system going forward. Mm -hmm. We don't expect to be the whole story by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Uh, we have tremendous opportunities to collaborate with other technologies as we move forward. Um, but can we play a significant role and be uh, you know, the major contributor over time? I think we'll certainly be the major contributor of new generation going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, depends how big the system expands to determine what that looks like across the, the entire grid. So let's talk about solar then, because um, I think there's some popular misconceptions about about um, uh, solar and the the place that it could potentially play um, in Canada's future. I've been uh, surprised at some of the uh, some of the um, projects that have cropped up in the Canadian Arctic, where mm -hmm. where we're we're seeing solar projects uh, that are that are coming in and and offsetting offsetting diesel. Now mm -hmm. you know in the middle of the winter they're they're you know not playing a significant role. Um, but this isn't Arizona, but nonetheless, we're seeing we're seeing these projects crop up as far as the Arctic Circle. Uh, what's um, you know what is what is going what's going on when we can look at, at using uh, using uh, solar generated electricity that far north? Is it is it because the technology is getting that much better, or just we're figuring out how to use it better? What's what's driving that? Uh, it's it's a couple of things. I mean, I'd start by saying there are some areas within Canada that have very, very strong solar resources, for right. example, the southern part of the prairies and yep. things like that, where there are tremendous opportunities. But yes, the advancements in the technology uh, in terms of the uh, advancements in our ability to uh, the efficiency of panels, yep. so we'll take panels in terms of capturing energy from the sun, our ability to pair that with energy storage, mm -hmm. to be able to ensure there's no wastage of energy, that we can store the energy and use it when it's most appropriately uh, required, um, are all advances that are continuing to drive this forward. But in many ways, the key driver, or, or a key driver, I guess I would say, on the solar side is yes, we're seeing the costs come down so that it's a cost-effective application, yeah. but there's just also a strong customer and consumer demand okay. for solar. Uh, corporations, uh, homeowners who are interested in achieving some more element of energy independence, mm -hmm. um, who are looking for opportunities to put into practice uh, some environmental considerations or commitments that they've made and want to do that in a cost-effective manner. And so I think Solar is only one part of this equation as well, but the growth that we expect to see in distributed energy resources mm -hmm. I think is going to be quite significant. And I think one of the, you know, the challenges that we will have to, all of our associations will have to address is as, as you see more growth on the distributed side, 
um, as the lines between distributed generation and sort of transmission connected generation sort of start to blur and continue yep. to blur, what is the, the sort of market and regulatory framework that enables that and allows you to capitalize on, on the strengths of all of those technologies mm -hmm. in an efficient and effective manner? And again, because you know, the, the current regulatory, or the current regulatory construct doesn't right. It's it's acting more as a barrier. It is a barrier in the sense that it's it's uh, in a couple of ways. One thing which the CEA has certainly talked about for a long time is the the barriers imposed by the regulatory frameworks in terms of uh, barriers to innovation, mm -hmm. and yeah. barriers to experimentation, and moving forward. Um, but I think we have we're also seeing some of these technological changes are happening so fast. Right, that I think it's, uh, you know, regulators are kind of caught up a little bit in sort of, well, how do we deal with energy storage? Is it a load? Uh, is it a generation source? Um, how do we treat it? What is it? What do they pay? How do they, you know, those those questions are just being wrestled with right now. Sure. And um, again, if we can tackle those questions, um, what we're seeing is the emergence of a much broader array of options and opportunities for us to meet various sort of objectives with the electricity grid. And it's very much in our interest to try and find ways to capture all of that, to ensure that, um, that we really are driving for the most efficient and cost-effective sort of solutions going forward. So how would you answer that question? The, the question that you're saying that uh, regulators are, are are struggling with among many questions that they're struggling with. Uh, storage is it uh, is it load or is it generation? Well, and the honest answer is it's both. It's both. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but how, yeah, how does it, how does a regulator uh, within the and 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 I guess it's it's not necessarily a criticism of the regulators themselves, but but the 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 uh, in most cases the acts under which they operate just never envisaged a world the the world that we live in today, right? No, that's right. And that's, and, and again, yeah, I would also say it's not a criticism of the regulator. It's just a yeah. reality. It's a reality. Yeah. To do. yeah. And, uh, you know, in the end, it comes back, I think, a little bit to what you were talking about earlier in terms of when we start thinking more about ancillary services. Okay. Yeah. And if we start thinking about in an electricity grid, what, what are we looking for participants in the electricity grid to provide? Clearly defining those, clearly assigning a value to those, yep. mm -hmm. and creating a market that allows anybody who can provide that service to actually have an opportunity to compete to provide that service. And, you know, what we'll find is that there are, um, you know, I think, for example, in energy storage, it means don't think of energy storage as a block and try and say, how do we deal with this as a block? Try and mm. think of it as a provider of this service and right. get yep. it to participate in the rules for providing that service or the provider of this other service and get them to do it that way. So I think it's a, it's it's reframing what we're asking for from the various participants in the system, and uh, and creating creating the structures again that allow everybody to sort of play in that space if they're able to. Yeah, um, I, I mentioned earlier, and of course, you know, um, we talk about it within our association and in your association, among the associations, um, we've got a government that's committed to a net zero by 2050. Um, we've got, a, you know, a number of, of different groups that are trying to get a sense of what the scope and scale of that looks like. The one thing that everybody is at least is able to agree upon is that is a, 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 a deep decarbonized world that is going to rely uh, increasingly and massively on, on electricity. What is that going to look like for the, the end customer? Because 
you know, what what do you think the 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 end customer will be seeing uh, in 2050 as uh, as an electricity industry? I guess a couple of things. I would I would hope that uh, in terms of the services they're receiving from the electricity yeah. sector, that they don't actually see much of a difference. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. continue to receive steady, reliable power. They plug the thing in the wall. Right. Um, but I expect we will see um, customers become much more participants in the system. Okay. And okay. whether that is in terms of the sort of prosumers that we hear about in terms of actually participating and also producing power for their yep. own needs or putting it into yep. the grid, but even just in terms of energy management and, 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 and being more aware of and, and, uh, and more responsive to sort of different um, signals that mm -hmm. they're receiving from the energy market. So if somebody has an electric vehicle and they have a solar panel on their roof and they have a battery in their basement and they're still drawing from the grid once in a while, um, how that all interplays. And there's already some examples of technology out there where yep. you know somebody can look and say, okay, well, the price of power is this now, so I'm actually gonna start moving stuff out of my battery and feeding it into the grid. Mm -hmm. the price of power is really low now, so I'd like to charge my battery and those sort of things. I think we'll see more of that. Um, it may not be an individual needs to hold a, a, a phone to do that. It might be there's a software program that somebody just purchases and it manages that for them. Right. But yep. I think we will, we will see uh, increasing uh, sort of, uh, uh, as I said, participation, but sort of engagement into the electricity system from a much, much broader range of participants going forward. Yeah. And, and I think that will only be accelerated as we move forward towards net zero, because what we know, and we've talked about this before as a group of associations, mm -hmm. uh, you don't get to net zero without significant electrification. Yep. You don't yep. get to significant electrification without a significant expansion of electricity production. Yeah. And when, you know, when electricity is not just turning your lights on anymore, but now it's also how you're moving around in a vehicle. Mm -hmm. and it's also... Mm -hmm how your building is being heated. And it's also when you go and work in your factory and the industrial process industrial is now working with electricity, yeah, yeah. Um, you'll be much more aware of the role of electricity in society. And I think that that sort of education and, and greater awareness will be very, very positive because I think if people are invested and have a better understanding, um, they will be more appreciative. And I think we've, you know, the CEA has been a leader, I think, in trying to uh, share with people the value of electricity and trying to describe what that value mm -hmm. is instead of just taking it for granted. Right. And I think as electricity plays a much larger role going forward in meeting our energy needs, I'm hopeful that that will allow people to become more active participants and more actively engaged in thinking through these issues. Right. Robert, one of the things that I ask um, everybody that comes on to the podcast is about a book that they're either reading or recently read that they would recommend to the uh, to the listener. So for you, what book would that be? So I recently read a book. Uh, the title is The Over Story. The Over Story? Yes. And it's okay. written by a fellow named uh, Richard Powers, an American author. Mm -hmm. And it follows the journey of uh, a number of people. I think it's nine individuals who at some point in their lives 
have had a profound experience uh, that has impacted their life for good or bad, which has involved trees. 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 Okay. And what the book does is it follows the journeys of these people to actually, as they sort of move and come together to jointly work for the protection of forests going forward. And there are some successes, some failures on the way. It, it's, it's a situation much like we are today where we can point mm -hmm. to some good things and some not, not so good things. Um, but what it really does a good job of is highlighting, first off, many different ways that individuals can contribute to protecting the health of the forest and ultimately the health of the planet, whether it's through science, whether it's through spiritual leadership, whether it's through activism, et cetera. It does a very good job of sort of highlighting, I guess, the benefits that forests bring to the broader ecosystem, mm -hmm. understanding that, and also just shows the many different ways that forests as a sort of standard, but nature, I guess, uh, touches all of us and has an impact on our lives. So following these people's journeys as they mm -hmm. move forward, I found quite powerful, ultimately, and uh, and I would very much recommend it because I think it uh, it uh, it really <laughs> draws you into sort of why these why these things which have been on Earth longer than, than a lot of us have yeah. um, why these trees are so important. And uh, not only for ecosystems, but for us going forward. Okay, so I'm going to have to read that book because I believe you're the second person coming onto the podcast recommending uh, the overstory. Ah, uh, too. So, so uh, we, we now have two recommendations uh, that that be uh, part of the, uh, the Flux Capacitor uh, book club. So yeah. thanks for that. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it was an, a very interesting conversation. And I, I mean, I look forward to continuing to, to working together. But I, I do want to thank you for taking the time to jump on the podcast today. Very much appreciated. No, it's my pleasure to have the opportunity. And I, uh, I, I just want to flag, I guess, for all of your listeners that um, I've been, uh, you know, I think we're very fortunate to be in an era where all of us who are involved in the electricity sector are increasingly coming together to work yeah. on common challenges and not yeah. sort of seeing ourselves as competitors in terms of trying to, uh, to, to sort of build growing forward. And I think there's a growing recognition and understanding that uh, the future actually will rely much more heavily on intense collaboration and cooperation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, really pleased to see that trend emerging. And I think CEA is playing a leading role in that regard. So signal that and signal my appreciation for that as well. Oh, well, thank you very much. And again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.